Thank you. What a joy to be with you once again. Uh, I would ask you to pray for me this morning. I, um, you know, the Lord has, in a sense, uh, a sense of humor. Some of the things that I'm going to touch on this morning, I was given the privilege of practicing before I, was, I preached it. Wednesday, I was going into a very important meeting, walking normally along the sidewalk, and about three steps, three feet from the door, I suddenly heard a snap. Thank you, Matthew. I suddenly heard a snap, and with that snap came such intense pain, it almost dropped me to the ground, and I grabbed a hold of the bar of the door, and Went to the doctor on Thursday. The pain was so intense. And I said, doctor, and he's a godly Christian man. I said, you got to do something for me. I have some dear folk in North or in Wilkesboro that I need to preach to on Sunday. So you need to give me something to help me get through. And he said, I'll take care of you. So he's taking care of me physically, though I'm hobbling like an old man, uh, maybe that I am. And so it is a joy to be with you, and I'm thankful to the Lord for his grace. I love you folks, pray for you, and thank you for once more allowing me the privilege of coming and ministering the word of God to you. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I want to read verses 16 through 18, which is up here on the screen for you. And I want to speak to you this morning on the soul eyeing eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Hear now once more the word of the living God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. May the Lord add his blessing to this, the reading of his word, and give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to receive, and wills to obey. Let's pray. Great God, our Father, we come into your holy presence this morning, and we are thankful that you are God and God alone. You do not change with the changing seasons of times and culture. You remain same. In you, there is no shadow of turning. And we bless you today that you are covenantally faithful to all of your promises that you have made to us, and that all the promises in Christ Jesus are yea and amen. And so we come to you to worship you this morning, to give unto you the glory and the honor and the magnificence due to your holy name. We come, O oh Father, as a needy folk. We need you to fill our souls. We need you to redirect our thinking, to channel our thoughts, and to refocus our gaze. 
And so I pray by the Holy Spirit who gave this holy word, who moved upon holy men of old as they wrote down your very word, that you would work deeply and effectually in each mind and soul today. Draw us away from the things that hinder us from running the race with patience and cause us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, endured the cross and is seated at your right hand. O Lord Jesus, do your great office work today. Intercede for us, bless us. O Spirit of God, do your office work. Work in each mind and heart to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose holy name I ask these things. Amen. Here is a wonderful passage of scripture. I love it. It has been a guide. It has been a star for me to lead me in many times of difficulty and many times of trial. And the whole context of this passage, Paul begins in chapter, uh, this chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having received this ministry, we do not lose heart. And once more in verse 16, he turns to this very theme again. And he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. And just by way of beginning this morning, I want to ask you some questions, very direct questions. What is it that is in your heart and life, in your job or situation that tempts you to lose heart? Have you ever ever been discouraged? Have you ever wanted to just give up? Have you ever wanted to just throw up your hands and say, what's the use? If you haven't, you say you have it. You're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with me. You're not being honest with the Lord. Every one of us has faced it, haven't we? There have been times we have lost heart and we have done what we have done in the Christian life, not out of a sense of joy or a sense of just love to the Lord, but we've done it perfunctory out of sheer, mere duty. And that can be good. As Robert E. Lee said, one of the most beautiful words in the English language is duty. Sometimes we don't feel like doing a lot of things. We don't want to do a lot of things, but we do them out of duty. But that duty has as its foundation, as its wellspring, a love to him who first loved us. It causes us to go forward when we don't feel like going forward. We don't want to go forward. What is it that is in your life that causes you to lose heart? Also, let me ask you, What is your focus? What is your attention? Upon what are your eyes fixed and gazed? The scripture here deals with this very thing because all of us are so tempted, one, to lose heart. And two, we're so tempted to look at things around us, the things that are not seen, rather than looking at the things or uh, the things that are seen rather than looking at the things unseen. And we'll deal with all of this as we go through. And so what I want to do this morning as Paul writes these words, as he is moved upon by the Spirit of God and writes this inspired and errant and infallible word, is I want to draw our attention to the soul, the soul, all that we are, eyeing eternity. And may the Lord help us to do so. The first thing I want us to see in this passage 
is the actuality of decay. Notice what he says in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing. Interesting statement, the way he puts it. The outward man, of course, here refers to our mortal frame, our bodies. The second law, how many of you know what the second law of thermodynamics is? A couple of us do. The second law of thermodynamics, I won't go into the first law, but related to it is the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is in a state of degeneration. Let me illustrate that. You go to, you need a new vehicle, you need a new car, SUV, whatever. You go, you buy one. And the moment you pull it off of the showroom parking lot or whatever, it begins to decay. And your car doesn't get better and better and better so that you, the first car you bought when you were young, some of you haven't bought your first car yet, but whenever you do, it's not going to get better and better and better and better so that you'll never, ever have to buy another car. Instead, it is in a state of perpetual degeneration. That's why we have mechanics. And then I can illustrate it by our own body. Now, you young people, you are so blessed. I've watched so many young people, and I said to my wife the other day, I said, sweetheart, I'd give $1,000 if I had the energy of that little kid running right down the street going back and forth. You know what I mean? You're getting older and older. You have to go get glasses. You have to get them checked every year or two. You have to get them renewed. You go from single lens to bifocals to trifocals. Contacts, some of us, or I don't, but some have contacts. And we are in a state of degeneration. Your hair turns gray. Your hearing, what? Becomes, my wife says, I have selective hearing. I plead uh, guilty. <laughs> but the whole point is that everything is in a state of degeneration. He says it so clearly, so unmistakably. Even though our outward man is perishing, it is actually undergoing constant decay and moving steadily toward the grave. I was talking one time to our young people in my former church where I pastored, and Debbie was there, and she said something about the will. We She just stepped in and said, I have the the will ready, and so forth. And the young people said, a will? And I said, yes, actually, I planned out my funeral. And they said, oh, pastor, that's so morbid. I said, no, that is so biblical. Because you are going to die. If our blessed Lord Jesus Christ does not split the heavens and call us to glory, we will die. You will die. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. It's coming to you. I'll never forget when I was diagnosed with cancer and I started my six months of chemo treatments, I was expecting to go into the treatment room where there were about 18 to 20 people at any given time. And I was expecting to see all old 
people. Instead, I saw this young man walk in. He was about six foot six. He looked so fit, so trim. I later found out that he had played college football for UCLA. And at the age of 29, he is fighting for his life with cancer. I don't know how it turned out, but I know he was in a dire strait at that particular juncture. Wasn't an old man, a young man, and some would say in his prime. And notice the word, though the outward man is perishing. Now I want you to notice something here. It's in the present tense. It's not in the past tense. It's not in the future tense. It's not that your old outward man is going to perish. It's in the present tense right now. Is perishing. By the way, the same word perish here is the word that is used for perish in John 3.16. That the one believing in him should never perish, but life everlasting have. It is in a constant state. But notice there, however, is a contrast for the, the for the believer that is not present with the non-believer. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet, which is a big word, a big conjunction, yet the outward man, uh, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, let me... Follow with me here. I don't want to lose you. I want you to follow with me here. I want you to see that the word perishing is in the present tense. It's present active. It is going on even as we speak. But yet when he turns to the inward man, it is being renewed day by day. The word being renewed is in the passive voice, meaning we are not renewing ourselves. And I remember as a young Christian first reading this, and I thought, oh, being renewed day by day, you need to read my Bibles and pray. And yes, you do. You need to read the Holy Scriptures every day. You need to pray every day. But that is not referring to these things. The outward man is present tense, perishing, present active, indicative. But the inward man is being renewed passively we are not renewing ourselves let me let you in on a little why why my dear sisters and brothers when you feel like giving up when you don't want to put one foot in front of the other foot that you do and you keep going regardless of how you feel and you take another step after another step after another step It is being renewed passively. You are not renewing yourself. The Lord who saved you, the Christ who died upon the cross of which we so wonderfully sang this morning, he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of redemption, until perfection, until it is completed. He started the work in you. He is continuing the work in you. Now, this is something that the unbeliever has, or the unbeliever does not have. The inward man is perishing, 
but being renewed for the, by the way, the word renew here is the same word that is translated resurrected, is being renewed day by day. But we are not renewing ourselves. And the unregenerate are perishing just like us. But they are not being renewed, which is all the more sad. And and I think Paul is going to be drawing this conclusion. Here's a marked contrast between the believer and the unbeliever, the unregenerate, the regenerate and the unregenerate, the saved and the unsaved, the Christian and the non-Christian. What is it that keeps us going on? What keep, What is it that moves us in our inward man, in our soul? That though we, everything within us cries, give up, turn around, go back, forget about it. What is it that keeps you going forward? You may go three steps forward and take two steps back, but you will keep, you will get up and you will keep going three steps forward, may lose another step here and there. But the progress of the Christian is that he or she is being renewed and will continue to go forward. Amen. Second thing I want us to see, not only the actuality of decay, but the certainty of distress. Now, is I think that you have to see, at least for me, it's interesting that Paul turns to verse 17 where he says, for our light affliction, for our light affliction. I actually have a couple of sermons that I preach on the theology of affliction. Paul said in First Thessalonians that Christians were appointed to affliction. Now, the word affliction is an interesting word. I used to think, I remember growing up in these Baptist churches over here in the eastern side of Oaks County, and I would hear them, they'd say, pray for the sick and afflicted. Well, somehow or another, I connected sickness with affliction, and sickness is affliction. But the word here that is translated affliction is also translated in other places, trials, tribulations, difficulties, hardships. It's that Greek word, thalipsis. And I kind of use learning, having to study, and boy, was it hard. Those who think that studying and education is easy surely don't know what they're talking about. You're having to learn the Hebrew and the Greek and nouns and verbs and declining the nouns and parsing the verbs and so forth. And man, I'm sitting there and I feel like my head's about to explode. But I used what you call memnonic expressions. And when I had to learn in the vocabulary the word thalipsis, which is often translated affliction, I said, ah, thalipsis is something that flips us, something that all of a sudden out of nowhere hits you. And it almost flips you, just like when my knee snapped on Wednesday. That was a thalipsis, boy. I don't want to go through that again. He says, for our light affliction. Affliction is anything that comes upon you. And it's translated in so many different ways throughout the New Testament that will cause you to slow down. 
cause you to lose heart, cause you to turn your gaze from Christ to the things around you. And notice, as Paul says, it is certain in the Christian life. It is distress upon distress, pressure upon pressure, trial upon trial, heartache upon heartache. You know what I'm talking about. These are realities. It can be bodily. It can be mentally. It can be financially. It can be socially with your friends. It can be in your family. All of a sudden you hear something about a family member that you know is contrary to the law of God and to the gospel of God's grace, and it breaks your heart. It can be spiritually. It can be many things. This term affliction is a broad term. Distress, pressure, trials are part of God's effectual design and his sovereign providence for the believer. For our light affliction. He's dealing with these matters. And I don't have time to develop all the context, but just read chapter four this afternoon when you get home and you'll see the context of it. And in Paul's situation, the context in the church in Corinth, one of the most pagan, ungodly cities of that day. And he goes into this city and he preaches not himself, but Christ Jesus crucified. And you can see the context. These afflictions are ordained of God in his providence. Instead of crying and saying, why me? Why is this happening now? We should say, what is the Lord doing in my life? What is God saying to me? And you've heard me say this before, I think. But God doesn't try to say anything. God doesn't try to do anything. God says and God does. You and I try to do a number of things. But God never tries. What he sets out to do, he does. He doesn't try to speak. One man said, you know, the Lord is trying to speak to me. And I said, no, he's not. He said, yes, he is. I said, no, he's not. He is speaking to you. He doesn't murmur. He doesn't mutter. He doesn't stammer. He's speaking. He's speaking loudly and clearly in his word and in divine providence. And so these trials, which God sends to purify us and to keep our minds directed toward heaven, are very real, but they're effectual. Now, when they come, and they surely will come, and young people, I my heart goes out to you. I think of you, and, and there's peer pressure, pressure to conform by those around you. And if you don't conform, then there's the snickering behind your back, or there's the whispering. Let me just encourage you. One of the things that God used in my life growing up, and I went to the Elkin City Schools, there were two young ladies. One was in my class and one was in the class behind me. 
unrelated. They knew one another, but they were Christians. And one of them even carried her Bible to school every day. And I look at her, but I saw something in her that I didn't see in these other girls in the school. I saw real integrity. She didn't conform to the the filth and the trash that was going on. She didn't fall into all the gossip. And one of the other ladies, young ladies, sat beside of me. And, and in my high school days, those were what I would call my BC days. You know what BC days are? Before Christ. Before Christ. And I would be doing something or saying something. And Betty would look at me and she'd go, now, Earl. And though I was unsaved, it still had an impression upon my mind and heart. Now, with the believer, when afflictions come, you might have peer pressure. You might have peer pressure from your friends. You might have peer pressure at work. All sorts of pressures upon you to conform to the standards of the world instead of being lovingly and joyfully obedient to the word of God. They come. They will surely come. There is the tendency to begin to question. Why can't I have good friends that will encourage me and support me? And with that, questioning often comes frustration, which leads to anger, which can lead to depression, which can lead to self-pity which can lead to dismay, which can lead to hurt, on and on and on. Friends that you thought were faithful and loyal suddenly stab you in your back. These are all afflictions of one sort or another. And so we often look at them and think, oh, why is this happening? Why is this happening now? Why is it happening to me now? But there's another way of looking at these things. And Paul describes it for us and tells it it to us here in this passage. Notice, he said, for our light afflictions, or light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I want you to notice several things about these trials, these difficulties, these hardships that we face in the Christian life, how we should look at them. There's a biblical way to look at distress or affliction or trials. And Paul describes them for us here. Notice, first of all, for our light affliction. Oh man, Paul, do you really mean light I mean, talk to this lady whose husband was a pastor. He was on his way with his brother to preach in a conference. Sitting at a traffic light, the light turns green. He goes through, and a car runs a red light, T-bones him. He's killed instantly. His brother, who is on the other side and the passenger side with him, dies three days later, and she's sitting there. And she's she's stunned. She doesn't know what to say. She's so hurt. How can this be good? 
He's a pastor. He's a man of God. He was going to preach the word of God. And here, suddenly, out of nowhere, he is T-boned. You know what I mean by T-boned. And killed. And I said, dear sister, I don't mean to be callous. I don't mean to be sound hard. But this is a light affliction, especially for your husband. He immediately is in glory. But for you, though the pain is real and it's deep, it's genuine, we need to look at it, as Paul says, for our light affliction. And when Paul says light, he's talking about after having been beaten with 39 stripes on two occasions, shipwrecked, almost died, slandered, falsely accused, I could go on and on and on as he himself gives testimony. But he said, these afflictions are light. We'll see how they're light in just a minute. But secondly, notice they're momentary. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Hang on to that because I want to develop it further. Momentary. And notice also, they're working for us. Look what he says. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us. Really? You mean the fact that this happened or that happened? This that threw me in such a state of despair, I almost went into depression. That's working for me? Yes. Never forget what God says in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As far as the mountains are removed from the sea, so are my thoughts and my ways from your thinking. I'm giving a slight little pain. God sees the upper side We only see things from the lower side. They're light, they're momentary, and they're effectually working for us. I don't always understand the scholastic father Anselm said, we're not understanding in order that we might believe, we believe in order that we might understand. I don't always understand the ways of God and the workings of Christ in my life, but I believe that all things are working together for good, my good, even the dark things, the difficult things, the hard things, the trying things. They're working for my good and his glory. I don't understand it, but I believe it. Love an old, old hymn written by a Baptist in Liverpool, England. And each stanza of the hymn says, He too wise to be mistaken, he too good to be unkind. Our God is too wise to be mistaken. He's too good to his elect, redeemed, believing people to be unkind. And these things that he has effectually brought into our lives are light, they're momentary, and they're working for us, not against us but working for us. I don't know about you, but that encourages. Leading us 
fourthly, to an eschatological end. And Paul says, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And the language of the New Testament that Paul uses here is so wonderful. It's so full of superlatives. How many of you know what a superlative is? Studied in. All right, you young people. I'm good. Glad to see your hand. Superlatives. I mean, he's adding on and adding on. Matter of fact, Paul creates words that weren't even made in the New Testament with his own, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, creating these wonderful superlatives, which are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I can't, I don't know that I can even begin to unpack all that that's there. But these afflictions that cause us sometimes to lose heart, cause us sometimes to want to give up, are designed and ordained by God, and they're leading toward an eschatological end. When you think of eternity, that for the child of God, we are going to spend eternity. I can't even begin to describe eternity. Forever and ever and ever. The original language says from the age until the ages, plural, eternity. And these things are working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It causes us to eye eternity. These things that God sends, these trials, these difficulties that God sends are intended, and I'm getting to some of my application are intended to take your eyes off of the things around you and put your eyes upon things that are eternal and glorious. Be certain that afflictions, distress, pressures, trials, difficulties of all sorts will come into your life. Be certainly encouraged, though, that God the Lord makes them in your life to be effectual. He's conforming you shaping you into the image to which you've been predestinated, the image of God's dear son. The third thing I want us to look at is the reality of eternal destiny. Verse 18 for me, in many senses, is so convicting. And yet, on the other hand, it's so encouraging. While we do not look at things that are seen, I can say, wait a minute, Paul. I so often look at things that are seen. If you're honest with yourself. I mean, some of you knowing know that tomorrow morning when you go to your job, you're going to be faced with pressures that you dread. You're going to be faced with difficulties. Things are going to come that are not going to pour the oil of gladness over you. It's reality. How do we respond to that? Paul makes an assertion that is a reality in the Christian. We do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. Had this young person to come to me and said, Pastor, you don't know how difficult it is. I seek to be a Christian in school. And these kids, they're 
flight to my face, but behind my back, they're saying things like weird, crazy, ignorant. And I said, that's okay. They said strange things about our Lord Jesus, didn't they? At least you haven't been accused of being filled with the demon or casting out demons in the name of the prince of demons, right? I want you to see something here with this word look. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. In the New Testament, there are two words that are translated see or look. One is a standard word like I I'm standing here and I see all of you. But there's another word. And when I tell you what the Greek word is, you're going to immediately associate it with understanding its meaning. It is the word scopeo. It's where we get our word telescope and microscope from. Scopeo means not just to, I'm looking at this room. Instead, I say, go over there and I see this button on Daniel's shirt. And I get up real close and I'm examining that button. I'm scoping it out. And that's the word that Paul uses here. We do not just generally look at the things that are around us. But he says, we look at the things that are unseen. We are scoping out. I have a pastor friend in Washington State. He says, Every pastor, and should be true for every Christian, should have two instruments. They should have a telescope, and they should have a microscope. And I said, what? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. Telescope. There are two Greek words I've just taught you, telescope and microscope. Telescope comes from the Greek word telos, which means the end or far off. We're looking in a telescope, we're looking at things that are far off, microscope, looking, examining things closely. That's the word Paul's using. We do not look, scopeo. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. This world is passing away. I the other day I was doing some research on John Chrysostom and an ad popped up and I shouldn't have done it, but I did. It was saying, where are they now before and after? And it showed this beautiful actress many, many, many years ago. And out of curiosity, I thought, well, how does she look today? And here she was, you see her in the movies many years ago, beautiful. Oh, just so gorgeous. And you look at her today, and she's wrinkled all over the place, skin wrinkled. Where's the beauty, the glitz, the glamour of yesteryear that everyone talks about? The second law of thermodynamics is at play. These things that we look at that appear so beautiful, so glitzy, so glamorous, I can tell you, my friends, they are passing away. And we cannot get caught up and looking at the momentary, looking at the physical, looking at the things that are around us. Because Paul says, for the things which are seen 
temporary. And the things which are not seen are eternal. Here he makes a declaration of monumental significance that should impact our lives daily. What is seen, what you will see tomorrow, what you will see the next day if the Lord lets you live, it's only temperate. It's going to pass away. And the hardships and the difficulties, trials, temptations that you hear and experience, they are momentary. They will pass away. And we need to realize that. The Christian looks beyond the things that are seen and looks at the things that are eternal. And Paul makes this observation, really, which is a fruit of grace. How do we see the things that are not seen? How can we see? I mean, we can see. I can see those tangible fruit uh, trees, bushes. I can see that pergola or that shelter out there. I can see that. But how do we see the things that are unseen, that cannot be seen, the things that are invisible? the things that he says are eternal. We do so with the eye of faith. Faith, the faith by which we are justified, the faith that is the gift of God, the faith that causes us to keep on keeping on when we don't feel like keeping on keeping on. We, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. <clears throat> John Calvin said in this his commentary on this passage, a moment is long if we look at the things around us. But once we raise our minds to heaven, a thousand years begins to be like a moment. <clears throat> our problem is, we're not gazing enough on heaven. And we're not gazing enough on him who is sitting at the right hand of the This is illustrated. There's some old hymns. I love old hymns. I maybe have told you the illustration you read in Charles Spurgeon's biography. <clears throat> he, he came from a large family and famine hit and his parents fostered off the children to their parents. And so he went to live with his grandpa and grandma. And his grandma gave him a penny for every hymn that he memorized. Then in the granary, rats came in and started eating the grain and stuff. And his grandpa gave him five pence for every rat he killed. And he said, I quit memorizing hymns and started killing rats. He said, which do you think has profited me most today? I love the old hymns. I love the contemporary. I love any music that is God-centered, Christ-oriented, glorifying to the triune God. But there's one old hymn that I love. It's talking about the martyrs. Let our choir new anthems raise. And there's a stanza in there that talks about the martyrs that were martyred for their faith in Christ. And it says, never flinch they from the flame, from the torture, never. Vain the foeman's sharpest aim, Satan's best endeavor. For by faith they saw the land decked in all its glory. 
where triumphant now they stand. You read of the martyrs. Many of them would go to the cross, uh, go to the stake, be burned, and they would be singing the praises of God. Many would be staked out, and I think of an early Christian lady named Prospera. Low tide, they drove a stake into the sand, and they tied her to the stake, waiting for the the high tide to come in. And they said, you renounce your faith in this Jesus, and we'll set you free. And she began singing the praises of God. And the last thing they heard as the high tide came in and drowned her was her singing the praises of God. How could she do that? How could she fail? Because she wasn't looking at the things that are seen but at the things that are unseen. It's kind of like Stephen, isn't it? The first martyr. As they're stoning him, he says, heaven opens up and he says, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but when Jesus ascended, what did he do? He sat down as a good high priest would. He sat down at the father's right hand. But when Stephen sees him, he's not standing, sitting down. He's standing up, waiting for the first martyr to be received into glory. How could they die? How could Christians face this? Because by faith, they looked beyond what is seen to see the unseen. Another Great hymn, and you may be familiar with this. Isaac Watts, am I a soldier of the cross? My soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb. I shame to own his cause or blush to speak his name. There's one stands in there that says this. The saints in all this glorious war shall conquer though they die. They view the triumph from afar and seize it with by faith. If any of you have ever been to heaven, don't believe in this nonsense, 45 minutes in heaven. We've not been there. We've not seen these things. But I believe them, and they're more real than life itself because the Scripture tells us. Be certain that the things seen are only temporary. We must look for the reality of an exceeding weight of glory that is to come for us. We may suffer here but glory is coming. Let me just close with a few points of application here. The first is that the Christian life is a series of contrasts. As you go through this passage, you can see them very clearly. There's the outward and the inward. There's the light and the weighty. There's the moment, the momentary, and there's the eternal. There are things that are seen and the things that are not seen. There is affliction, and there is glory. I know, the psalmist said, it shall go well with them that fear the Lord. And our whole life, and this that's why this so-called prosperity gospel is so damaging. You know, God wants you always to be healthy, happy, and rich. I say, pass the bread, the baloney's already been around. <laughs> don't tell that to 
the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament believers that stood fast for Christ. Don't tell that to the apostles and the New Testament believers that gave their lives for the cause of Christ. Don't tell them that God always wants you healthy, happy, and rich. Secondly, what is true of the regenerate, the Christian, is not true of the unregenerate. The Christian is perishing, yet is being made alive, being sustained day by day. The non-Christian is perishing and dying. Isn't it good to be a Christian today? I don't care what your tomorrow may have or the weeks ahead. It will go well with you. The Lord is working in you. The Lord is renewing you day by day. Thirdly, the world of unbelievers focuses upon and is content with the outward, the moment, and the scene. That should never be so with us. Again, Calvin in his commentary upon this passage says, In the reprobate, the outward man also decays, but without anything to compensate him or her for it. We're decaying, but glory is coming. Simple. Fourthly, afflictions, rather than hurting us, actually do us good. What a wonder to contemplate. The Lord is at work daily in the lives of those who believe. You may not sense it, you may not feel it, you may not see it. But Christ who bought you is not going to let you go. He's going to keep you until that final day. And then he stands before the Father and he says, Here my Father and all the children that you have given me. I have lost none. So dear ones, Rejoice in these things. And these are true even if you don't feel them. Fifthly, the things seen can lead us astray. We can look at all the pomp and circumstance. We can look at all the glitz and the glitter. And especially you young people, these things can lead you astray. They will pay. Don't be led astray by the things that are seen. We must not look and fix our gaze upon them and be carried away by them. Sixthly, the things not seen can be seen, but only with the eye of faith. I love Hebrews 11. How many of you know what Hebrews 11 is? What is it called? The Hall of Faith. Have you ever heard it called the Christian's Hall of Faith? You know how many people in Hebrews 11 are New Testament believers? Zero. In this chapter, Paul deals with the grace of faith. Why is it that you believe and others don't? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Father's room while thousands made a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Was the same grace that spread the feast that sweetly drew me in, else I had refused to taste and perish in my sin. 
It's God's grace working in you. And we can only see the things unseen with the eye of faith. And then I close with this. The Christian is one who ultimately has his or her gaze fixed upon eternity. Glory is coming. Glory is coming. I hear people talk, and it's true. What a mess our country is in. It is. If my daddy or grandpa, my grandma, were to see the things that are going on today, they would not believe it. But that's all right. We cannot be captivated by the things that we see. One day the heavens are going to open and there's going to be a great white horse. Revelation 19.10 and following. And the one who sits upon him is in a white robe and it's stained with blood, splattered with blood. Out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. And in wrath, he takes vengeance upon those that know not God and know not Christ. And he has on his thigh, on his vesture, on his thigh, the name Word of God. Why? Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By faith, we see that, do we not? We don't see it now. We get so angry. We get so frustrated at our wicked government leaders. That's all right. I've got a cousin. I love her. She is so possessed with these conspiracy theories. I said, Edna, darling, you're looking at the wrong one. You're looking in the wrong direction. One day they will have their comeuppance. And the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will set right all wrongs. For we do not look at the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How about you? What are you eyeing? May today, through the eye of faith, you look upon Christ, see him in all his beauty, and find in him a wonder and splendor that all the glitter and glitz of this world cannot even begin to compare. And if you're not saved today, the words of Christ through the prophet Isaiah, look unto me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am the Lord and there is none other. May God grant you that grace this day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. So much here that I left unsaid. I pray that you will move upon your people and cause them to contemplate and consider this passage and all of its richness and fullness. And in so doing, O Father, I pray that they might be strengthened in the inner man by the power of your spirit and that they might be more and more conformed to the image of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us, gave himself for us, went into the grave for us, was raised again the third day for us, ascended back into heaven 40 days later for us, and there sits at your right hand, Father, making intercession for us. 
glory be to the Lamb. Seal your truth to each heart and mind here. Cause it to bring forth fruit that remains, not just 30-fold or 60-fold, but 100-fold to your praise and glory. As I ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord.